So I'd like to draw your attention uh, once again to the book of Matthew as we are making our way verse by verse through the New Testament. We arrive here at chapter 17. Now you remember that leading up to chapter 17 that Jesus, he said to the 12, he said to the disciples, he said, who do you say that I am? And you remember that Peter, he said, well, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And you remember that Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Peter, right? Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. He is saying to Peter, do you realize that you have had a spiritual revelation? Now, Peter's got no clue, right? Peter is just talking, and just whatever was on the top of his head, that's what was coming out of his mouth, now, I believe that this exchange gives us tremendous insight concerning how God speaks and how God directs and leads us. Because when Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Peter doesn't say, oh, hold on, hold on. I got an incoming message here. Something, what, what, Lord, what, right? But rather, he just spoke the thought that he had in his mind. And when God speaks to us, when God is directing us, those thoughts, those directions are coming into our conscious mind so that it appears as if it's just a normal thought. I mean, those of you that have been walking with the Lord for a long period of time, I'm sure that you can look back at episodes of your life where you just thought to yourself, well, I'm going to go over here, or I'm going to say this. Or I'm going to do this. And then you look back and you realize, oh my goodness, God was guiding me. God was directing me and I didn't even know it because at the time it just seemed like it was just the thought that was, that was in my head. Now here's the problem. I get a million and one thoughts that come into my head. Half of them are goofy, right? So how in the world do I know? How can I discern that which is of God and that which is of my own nonsense. Well, I take, I take that thought, I run it through the grid of the word of God, and I ask myself, does this run parallel? Is this harmonious with scripture? Or is this contrary to scripture? And if it is harmonious with scripture, then it very well could be that God is trying to direct me, trying to guide me into some direction. Now, Jesus then said to Peter and to the others, he said, now I'm going to go down to Jerusalem. The religious establishment, they're going to do very bad things to me. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. Now, don't freak out. Three days later, I'm going to be raised from the dead. Now, the Jews were very confused about the Messiah. And it's easy to understand why they would be. Imagine now, you put yourself back in the first century, you don't have the New Testament. You don't have the story of the gospel. All you have is the Old Testament. And the Old Testament would seem to be communicating contradictory ideas about the Messiah. It would speak of the Messiah being a man of sorrow. He's acquainted with grief. It presents the Messiah as having some degree of difficulty in life. And then... It presents a Messiah that would rule and reign with a rod of iron. Well, those are two very contradictory things. If you are ruling the world with a rod of iron, who in the world is going to give you pushback? 
And yet the Messiah is going to suffer. Who in the world can give the one who rules and reigns with a rod of iron any kind of grief at all? So therefore, the Jews believed that there would actually be two men that would present themselves as the Messiah. They believed that one Messiah would be the Messiah, the son of Joseph. We know the story of Joseph well. Great guy. Things were difficult for him in life. They believed that a Messiah would come. He would be a great guy, but things would get off the rails and he would have great difficulty. Then they believed in the Messiah, the son of David. This is the mighty king. This is the Messiah that will come, rule and reign with a rod of iron. Now Jesus has said to them, you're right, I am the Messiah. And then immediately he says, I'm going to go down to Jerusalem. Very bad things are going to happen. He is declaring, yes, I am fulfilling the role of Messiah, the son of Joseph. But now, where we pick it up in chapter 17, he's going to tell them now, I am also the Messiah, the son of David. What the Jews didn't understand is that these two contradictory ideas about the Messiah are not going to be fulfilled by, by two guys, but really they're going to be fulfilled by one man. Now, we really have to begin with the very last verse of chapter 16. This is one of these unfortunate chapter breaks that you run into every now and then in Scripture. Because I believe that to really understand what's going on here, you have to read verse 28 and then verse 1 together. Now, let's notice what, he, what we're told here in verse 28. Assuredly, I say unto you that some standing here shall not taste of death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, is Jesus suggesting that some of the 12, and specifically he's going to be dealing with three of these guys, that they are going to have such a long life that they are going to continue living until the very day that Jesus comes a second time. Now, there, there are many in the church today that actually believe that. They believe that Jesus came back, his second coming took place in 70 AD. Now, I don't believe that. First of all, he says you're going to see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, that word kingdom is an interesting word. It is the word basalia, and it is not to be confused with an actual kingdom, but rather the right or the authority to rule over a kingdom. Christ is saying, some of you guys, you are going to see that I have a divine right to rule. Some of you guys are going to see before you die that I have a right to rule the kingdom of God. So some of you here, you're not going to die. And then notice how it just rolls now into verse 1 of chapter 17. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Now, why, why these three? Now, we know that they were good friends. We also know from Mark's gospel in chapter 5, we read, and also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. They were business partners. They worked in a commercial fishing operation together. So they've got a relationship. They have a business partnership. They are friends. Now, there are some that would say, well, these three make up the inner circle. 
that Jesus, he had an inner circle among the 12. Then we have uh, three uh, super uh, disciples, if you will, and that Jesus from time to time uh, would gather the three super guys together, and uh, that's where serious spiritual things uh, would be discussed. Now, I don't believe that because I understand the character of James and John and Peter. James and John were the sons of thunder, right? These were the guys who were offended, and they thought it would be a good idea to burn alive the people that offended them. Now seriously, when was the last time you were so offended that you thought it was a reasonable response to start the other person on fire? Now, I'm sure you wanna slap them, you wanna you know, throw them off the road, whatever, but seriously, to start another human being on fire because they have made you mad. This is what James and John were all about. And then, of course, you've got Peter. He's always stepping in everything. Now, if you were observing a classroom situation and you, thought, you saw three boys coming into the classroom and they begin to make their way to the back of the classroom and the teacher said, ah, no, 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 you three right up here, right next to my desk. Now, you would not think to yourself, ah, these are the star pupils of the class. That's not what you would think. These are three boys who are prone to trouble and therefore the teacher wants to keep a close eye on them. Here is Christ with the sons of thunder and stepping into everything Peter. And so Jesus said, now you three, I'm not gonna leave you here. You come uh, with me. Now it is interesting that in the gospels we find the three of them alone with Jesus three times. We find them at the raising, in Luke's gospel chapter eight, at the raising of Jairus's daughter and he's revealing to them that he is the victor over death. Towards the end of the book of Matthew, in Matthew 26, he takes them further into the garden and he is revealing to them that he is surrendering himself to death. Now, in verse one of chapter 17, he's taking them up to the mountain to show that he will be glorified in his death. So all three times that they are alone with Christ, it has something to do with death. Now I can't tell you why, it's just an observation that I'm making here. So he takes the three of them and notice what happens in verse two. And he was, this is Christ, was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared unto them talking with him. Now notice, first of all, Jesus is transfigured. This Greek word is where we get our word metamorphosis. The word means to uh, be changed into another form. Here is Christ uh, before these guys. He is changed into something different. Now we know that Christ was in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he took upon himself the form of flesh, humbled himself all the way to the cross, the death of the cross, whereby God has now highly exalted him, given him a name that is higher than any other name, that at that name, 
every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is the Lord of glory. Every single knee in this room, no matter what your relationship with Christ is, will bow one day. Every single tongue in this room will one day, no matter what your relationship is with Christ, you will confess that he is Lord. So Jesus emptied himself. And then we get to it in John's Gospel, chapter 17. As we get near now to the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus prays in verse five, and he says, now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world exists. Now, I want you to notice that this prayer, he is not asking anything. To glorify is imperative in the Greek. He is commanding the Father to do something. He's not saying, well, you know, if it's your will, uh, give it to me. But there is a demand on his part. I want what I had with you from the beginning. Now, what the disciples are seeing is a foreshadowing of the glorified Christ. Now, here is another interesting thing about this, because in Isaiah chapter 42, the Lord is speaking, and he says, now I am Yahweh. That's my name. I will not give my glory to another. Now, here's Christ saying, give me the glory that I had with you from the beginning. Now, the, the, the Lord is saying in Isaiah 42, I don't give it to anybody. Well, then how in the world do you reconcile these two scriptures? Well, Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is being glorified again, and the disciples now are seeing the glorification of Christ, and they are seeing that he has a divine right to rule in the kingdom. Now notice we've got Moses and Elijah there. Moses represents the law, Elijah the prophets. Christ fulfilled both the law and the prophets and we are told that they were talking with him. What are they talking about? Sports? The weather? Now thank goodness, Luke, who's a doctor, so Luke's gonna be a little bit more thorough. Luke tells us in his description of this event in chapter nine, he says suddenly two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, and they appeared in glory and they were speaking of his death, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So again, we are months away from the crucifixion, and now here is Christ being seen in his glorified state, and now we've got Moses and Elijah speaking to him about this death that was about to happen. Now, a couple observations about this. Notice, first of all, that Elijah, at this point, he has been dead about 900 years. Moses has been dead for about 1,500 years. I want you to notice that Elijah after being dead for 900 years, still Elijah. Moses, after being dead for 1,500 years, he's still Moses. And when you die, 900 years after you die, you're still gonna be who you are. 1,500 years after you die, you're still gonna be who you are. They weren't absorbed into the cosmic consciousness of the universe. They weren't reincarnated into something. They remained who they are, and you and I are gonna remain who we are. Now, of course, the big question is, 
where will you be? Not who will you be, but where will you be? Will you be in the presence of the Lord? I hope so. Will you be in outer darkness? I hope not. But if that is what lies in your future, I pray that your future soon changes. I want you to also notice that they knew that it was Moses and Elijah. How does that work? Well, they didn't have a photograph, I'm sure, of these guys. So how, in, in, in heaven, do we have name tags? Hello, my name is Moses. I, I don't know what's going on there. But we're going to know you, and you're going you're gonna to know me. Now, let's notice, Peter, this is a prime time for him to chime in, is it not? You ever be in one of those, you ever find yourself in one of those situations where I really need to say something profound, I really need to say something that's going to really grab him, right? And so Peter, always anxious, put his foot in his mouth. Notice in verse 4 that Peter answered and said to Jesus. Now let's notice the depth of this man's spirituality. Uh, let's notice the profound insight that this man has. What, what does Peter just have to say at this moment? Lord, it is good for us to be here. I'm sure the Lord is like, uh, thanks, Peter, for reminding me. Yes, it is good that we are here. I forgot about that. I'm sure that Moses and Elijah were like, who's, who's this guy? Who is this guy? And then he says, and if you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, what is this tabernacle business all about. And I want you to notice that there, there is a subtle implication here that Peter is sort of putting Jesus on the same level as both Elijah and Moses. He's not, he's not saying that somehow Jesus should be treated in a better way, a greater way, or a different way, but he seems to be saying that they're going to be treated all, all the, same, the same way. Now, the prophet Zechariah tells us that the nation of Israel has a thrashing in their future. American Christians, we've got a great misunderstanding about the nation of Israel. We got this idea that somehow God is going to always protect Israel, that somehow God, you know, they're his ancient people and he's never going to let Israel or Jerusalem fall. That just simply doesn't line up with scripture because the prophets are very clear that there is a time in Israel's future where Jerusalem is going to fall. Jerusalem will fall into the hands of the jihadists. Jesus spoke about the armies of the world surrounding the city of Jerusalem. There is going to be a jihadist that will be standing on the Temple Mount doing something that he should not be doing. And they will eliminate two-thirds of Israel's population. Millions of Jews are going to be killed in the future. A remnant will escape. And after that great holocaust, Christ is going to return, and he will save that remnant. But then Zechariah tells us this. This to me is fascinating. Then everyone who survives of all of the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of who they were, they're worshiping Christ. These jihadists that survived the butchery and savagery of Israel who are then allowed to enter into this kingdom age of the Lord, 
annually these jihadists now become the worshipers of Christ and they will keep the feast of tabernacles. Now you remember that the Feast of Tabernacles is a week-long celebration where Israel is commemorating the Lord's preservation of his ancient people, a couple of million Jews going through inhospitable territory. God preserves them there miraculously for 40 years. Now to remember that act of God for a week All of Israel would gather together and everybody would camp outside. And you'd make little lean-tos, you'd make make little booths, little tabernacles outside your house and you'd camp outside. And of course your kids are going to be saying, well, why why are we doing this? And well, honey, uh, we're doing it because we're remembering what God did for our ancient ancestors and we're just commemorating God's goodness to us uh, as a nation. Now, apparently this feast in the kingdom of Christ is gonna be celebrated. Now, Peter, knowing his Bible, he's looking at this thinking, ay, 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 the kingdom's here. Christ is, is glorified. And so where does his mind go? His mind go, we gotta have some booths. We gotta make some tabernacles here. And so, Lord, you want us to make you uh, a tabernacle. Now, as I say, he seems to be putting Christ on the same level as Moses and Elijah, the father is not going to tolerate this. And so notice what we read in verse 5. Now, isn't this a killer here? While he's still speaking, Peter will not shut up. He's just got to be running his mouth. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly, a voice came out of the cloud saying, zip it, Sparky, all right? This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Let, would you let him talk? And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and they were greatly afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, do not be afraid. When they had lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now again, these are three tough guys. Again, you've got the sons of thunder. They are aggressive men. You've got Peter. We're going to see in the chapters ahead. He's going to pull out a sword. He's going to try and take a guy's head off. I mean, that, that takes a degree of intensity. I mean, I, I've never tried that, but I'm assuming that it takes some intensity. These are, these are rough and tumble men. And these rough and tumble men are freaked out. They hit the deck probably looking down at the ground, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die. They are scared to death. Every episode in Scripture that we see of human beings brought into the presence of God, they are struck with awe, with fear, they are struck with dread. And so Jesus touches them and says, hey, it's okay, it's okay, you can get up. So they started heading down the mountain. Now notice in verse 9 that as they came down the mountain, Jesus commanded them saying, now tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Now, Jesus uses an interesting word there. Jesus says, don't tell the vision. Now, we hear this word vision. We think of a a dream state, right? We think of um, a a trance-like condition that a person is in. We think of like daydreaming. I mean, you're conscious, you're awake, and so forth, but, but your mind is somewhere else, or you're seeing another dimension or some such thing. And there are some people that believe that this whole episode was a vision 
that just took place in the minds of the three disciples. Now, what we have to understand is that this word vision doesn't necessarily mean a dream state or a trance-like state. The same word was used by Stephen in Acts chapter 7 when he's talking about the episode of Moses and his encounter with the burning bush. And he tells us in chapter 7, verse 31, when Moses saw it, that is the burning bush, he wondered at the sight. Now that that Greek word, the sight here, is the same word that is vision in Matthew 17. Now you go back and you look at the episode with Moses and the burning bush, it doesn't read like it's a dream state. It doesn't read like he's having some sort of a trend. It reads like this is actually happening in the physical realm. There really is a bush that's on fire. And he really does take off his sandals. And then, of course, we have Peter's testimony in 2 Peter where he tells us, he says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were, notice the term, eyewitnesses of his majesty. Our eyeballs saw something. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter seems to be suggesting we heard it with our ears, we saw it with our eyes, we know what we heard, we know what we saw, nobody tricked us, this is not sleight of hand, this is not a magician's trick. I'm telling you, we saw what we saw, and this is a man who will eventually go to a crucifixion of his own. And before they crucify him, they torture his wife, they crucify his wife, and then they crucify him. And all through that episode, he is given plenty of opportunity to recant. And this is a man who says, I know what I saw, I know what I heard, I'm not changing my story, this is not a bogus thing, this is not a myth, this was reality, and you can do to my wife whatever you want, you can do to me whatever you want, I am not changing my story. Now I don't know what you do with that. I don't know how you can say, well, it's all bogus, when we see witness after witness going to extremely violent deaths. Now, we are told here that, just, let's just keep this story to ourselves. Let's not blab this one uh, around, all right? Now, why? Why would he not want them to talk about this? Well, again, they don't know the whole story. And if you don't know the, sto the whole story, don't try and tell the story. I mean, don't, don't you hate it? When somebody's trying to tell you a joke and they forget the punchline, I mean, you're just wasting my time. I mean, don't, you, you take me through this long, detailed story, and then you get to the final, and you can't remember, oh, I, I forgot, well, thanks for wasting my time, all right? And so Christ is saying, 
don't tell the story until you, you know the whole story because Mark in chapter nine tells us as they're coming down the mountain that they kept the matter to themselves questioning what this rising of the dead might mean. Again, these are not highly intelligent men that we're talking about. These are guys who were told, what, 15 minutes before this? All right, I'm gonna go to Jerusalem. It's gonna get very bad. I'm gonna die, but don't freak out. Three days later, I'm gonna raise from the dead. 15 minutes later, they're like, I wonder what he means about this rising from the dead. What in the world is he talking about? So these guys, they're still somewhat clueless, and so the Lord is saying, let's just wait you know the whole story once you know the whole story then you can go out and blab it uh, all you want well then notice how this all closes in verse 10 and his disciples then ask him saying why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first and Jesus answered and he said to them now indeed Elijah now notice this is coming first and will restore all things notice they said you know what Elijah is out in the future Elijah will be coming, and Elijah will be restoring. Then notice what he says, but I say unto you that Elijah has already, has come already. And they did not know him, but they did to him whatever they wished. And likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. And then the disciples, now again, we, they're catching on, they're growing a little bit, right? Notice, then the disciples understood, ah, he's talking about uh, John the Baptist. Now, this would be a constant question that they would get from the skeptics at that time because the Old Testament is very clear. Elijah will come before the Messiah. And so, no doubt, the disciples are getting pushback from these religious leaders by saying, look, if your boy is the Messiah, then where in the world is Elijah? Elijah has to come first. Now Jesus says, oh, Elijah will come. He is in the future, but Elijah has already come. Now we dealt with this, you remember, back in chapter 11 of Matthew. In chapter 11, Jesus is talking to this large crowd of Jews, and he says to them in verse 13, for all of the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, if you're willing to receive what it is that I'm offering, if you're willing to receive that I am the Messiah, if you're willing to receive that I am bringing a kingdom to you, then he says, then, then he says that he, that is John, is Elijah who will come. And he that has ears to hear, let him hear. That if right now, if Israel will embrace me as their Messiah, we know that they did not, and that is why there is yet a future Elijah that will be coming. They rejected Christ, and as a result, uh, Jesus is saying to the disciples, well, Elijah is in the future. Now, you remember when John uh, was when it was prophesied by the angel that John was to be born, that the angel Gabriel said to his dad that this boy of yours, he's gonna be filled with the Holy Spirit from the moment of his birth. He will turn many of Israel's children to the Lord their God, and he will go out before God in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So if Israel would have embraced 
Christ at his first coming, then John fulfilled that prophecy in the Old Testament concerning Elijah coming because he came with the spirit and the power of Elijah. But unfortunately, they rejected him and Israel for the last 2,000 years has suffered terribly because they did not want their king. Now, how about you? How about you? Where is it that you are going? What will you experience five seconds after you die? We're all heading there. There's not a single one of us that will miss that event. You have an event of death in your future. And when it comes, what will you experience at that point? Do we understand that the gospel is the message that you don't have to experience judgment? The gospel is, is that you can have life. And the Bible speaks of the simplicity of the gospel. It's not complicated. It's not rocket science. The scripture just simply says that if you will but turn and say yes to the Messiah, the Philippian jailer asked the apostle Paul, what do I have to do to be saved? And Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't say, well, you're gonna have to give a certain amount of your income to the church. He didn't say, well, you know, you're gonna have to take our, uh, our, you know, our membership classes and these kinds of things. He said, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You picture a, you picture a board going across um, uh, some kind of a, uh, you know, a, a, a cliff and this board is going to the other side. And so you, you take your lead foot and you put it on there and you're like putting a little bit of your foot there and you're wanting to see if that board is going to be able to hold your weight. And then there comes that moment where you then take that back leg and you swing it around and you put all of your weight on that board. You're putting all of your trust that this board is gonna hold me. That is what saving faith is. That you are essentially saying, I'm putting all of my weight on Christ. I'm not trusting in my religious works. I'm not trusting in being a good person. Those things do not save. The only thing that saves is what Jesus said, no man comes to the Father except by me. And all the Lord wants you to do is just surrender your will that you might embrace him. I don't know all of you. I don't know where you're at this morning. But when I ask you the question, are you going to go to heaven? What was the answer that you came up with in the quietness of your heart? And if that answer was not an answer that you are pleased with, let's just take care of it. Let's just fix it just right now. We can, we can change your eternal destiny right now. All you have to do is say yes to Christ. And if you would like to say yes to the Lord this morning, and again, I know this isn't the easiest thing in the world, but I do think that it's somewhat necessary. If you would like to say yes to the Lord, just raise your hand, and I'm gonna pray for you this morning. Is there anybody here that you wanna say yes to the Lord? Now, for those of us who are the followers of Christ. I close with this. Where, where is Moses? Where's he at? He's in the promised land. You remember the story of Moses? He misrepresented God. And what did God do? God said, you're over, Moses. Moses' destiny was to take the children of Israel into the promised land. Moses misrepresented God. 
And God said, Moses, your dream is over. We're done. And you remember that Israel, they're brought to that staging area there at the Jordan River. And they're getting the military ready for the invasion of the promised land. And Moses is still alive. And Moses says to God, please, let me go in and just see it. And the Lord said, no. And don't ever bring it up ever again. I don't want you to ever mention this to me. Well, where's he at in our story? He's in the promised land. Do you understand that heaven is the restoration of all things? Look, if you are like me, you've got some real bozo moves in your past, right? You have got things that you did, that you said, places that you went to that you wish that you never would have. There's all kinds of things in our life that we wish that we could go back and get a do-over on, but you can't do it. You can't go back. And one of the dangers of life is, is that we spend all of our time worrying about going back and fixing the mistakes of the past, that we are wasting what little time we have left. And the great promise of the gospel of Christ is that heaven is the restoration of all things. And that many of the things that are cooking in your heart, many of the dreams, many of the ambitions that you have, I believe are going to be fulfilled there in the presence of the Lord where there is joy forevermore. And we have to understand that here is Moses. He can't go back. He can't fix it. But thank God, in the eternal realm, all things are made right. And so instead of you and I beating ourselves up about the things that we have said and done that was wrong, we should be looking forward and seeing that our great God and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the restorer of all things. And the day is going to come, brothers and sisters, we'll be standing on that glassy sea, and oh, joy forevermore. Let's pray that God would cause us to be a people that has an eternal perspective on life. Father, we thank you for your great love. Father, we thank you that you, in the fullness of time, that you sent forth your son and that he would empty himself and allow himself to be turned into hamburger for the likes of us, that he would go through hell in order that we would not have to experience such a thing. Father, what a miracle salvation is. And I ask, Father, that we would just be found rejoicing this week that our sin and our iniquity has been forgiven and that we are heaven-bound, not because we are goody church people, but because we have placed our trust in the living Savior. Oh, how we thank you, Father, for what you have done. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.